Oh, actually, no, that's how I do it. No. No, no, no. This is the RC Roundtable, a casual discussion about all aspects of flying model airplanes. Okay, well, welcome back to the RC Roundtable, serving your hobby needs since, oh, last week. And joining me again is the man who so coolly has two first names, Lee Ray. Hello. Next is the other man who has so much influence that RC groups named their icon after him, Terry Dunn. Howdy, y'all. Well, guys, thanks for joining me and joining us on this uh, another awesome get-together. Hopefully we'll discuss some things that uh, will be of all incredible interest to everybody. Uh, hey, did you guys hear about the new uh, Spectrum DX20 radio that uh, they announced, I guess, a couple months ago? It's shiny. It's shiny. It's shiny and carbony as, as well, I, I noticed. Is that real carbon fiber or simulated? It says carbon fiber front case, so I have no idea if it's real or Memorex, but uh, it certainly looks interesting. It sure does. There was a few things I noticed that uh, when I was looking at the stats that kind of uh, jumped out at me. Uh, the first thing such was as. such as it has a 250 model memory. It's not enough. Is, it's almost enough. I know I, I actually ran out of memory in my current transmitter, so I saw that. I was like, yeah. Uh, I didn't see if it has an SD card. I don't remember if it does or not. Uh, it does. Also, oh, it does. It, it has does? it on the bottom, yeah. So you have a 250 memory memory built in and an SD card. That's really nice. I wish more transmitters would do that. Uh, a wireless trainer link. It has. I'm not a DX uh, Spectrum person per se. Is this new for the Spectrum line to have a wireless trainer link? No, my DX8 has it, and I've used it before. Okay, I thought that was something new. Um, no, no. Um, I think, gosh, most manufacturers have it now, and it works well. It's pretty convenient. Yeah, it is. I know the Tactics have that. I think maybe they were the first ones to do that. Yes. That's the first one that I ever used. Yeah, and it, it seemed to work pretty good for you from what I remember, I think. It did. No problems. Well, the first thing that jumped out at me were the uh, aluminum gimbals. And I opened up the manual, and I looked at the DX9 and the DX18, and I don't think, I'm pretty sure they don't have it, but uh, this has adjustments on the gimbals to tighten the, the gimbals on the fly, so you don't have to open it. There's a, there are a couple of screws right next to the gimbals where you can uh, adjust the, the tension. On the front face? Uh -huh. oh. oh, interesting. Yeah, that's different. Wow. Are these like uh, CNC machined aluminum gimbals or something yeah wow fancy uh of course the dx20 being it's a 20 channel radio system which is i think the last one was 18 channel if i remember correctly so really you can i think the big advantage was the mixing i think i saw somewhere that has 16 programmable mixes so i think you could do anything with this thing so that brings up a question who needs 16 programmable mixes it's better to have too many than not enough, right? I guess, but I don't know. I, I think I'm sort of a, a simpleton when it comes to radios. Well, how else are you going to control a giant robot unless you have 16 programmable mixes? Well, I can see with a robot, but I'm trying to imagine an airplane that needs that much complexity. And it, it's just begging for problems. Well, maybe this flies into that there's another feature on it called a built-in sequencer where you can actually do, like, apparently, landing gear sequencing with doors and that kind of stuff. So maybe that will use up a whole bunch of mixes if you have sequencing gear doors for a rather complicated World War II plane or something like that. Okay, I can see that. I still think it's a very select uh, type of pilot that would use this much radio. Yeah, of course, there's the group that just likes the new shiny, fancy thing, and that's great too. But in terms of people who would actually use the the majority of its capabilities. I think that's a pretty elite group. Well, it is a, what, $1,300 radio, so I imagine that's already a very select group of people that's going to even buy the thing. But if you're a turbine guy, that's nothing. If you're a turbine guy, you're a very select person of the, <laughs> the hobby. <clears throat> so now I have to ask you guys, what's the most channels you ever used in a model? Well, I've used all nine channels before. 
Did you say all nine? Well, nine channels of my nine channel okay. radio. <laughs> Sorry. And what was that for? Uh, it was for my robot. Ah, uh, okay. What about flying models? My F8 Crusader conversion kit that I did of a uh, the old A7. I think I used up at least eight channels, seven, eight or nine maybe, actually, because... That's where you built in the variable incidents? It has a variable incidents wings, it has uh, flaps, a normal four channels, it's got rechargeable landing gear, and gear door uh, channel sequencer that's actually programmed into the radio. So you've got four, and this was on an five, Aurora? six... High-tech Aurora? That was eight channels. Yeah, Aurora, yes. Okay. And is that airplane still with us? Yes, it is. It's hanging up on the wall right here next to me. All right. Yeah, it's still going. What about you, Lee? Of the seven-channel receivers I own, I max them out on all the planes, which is the reason why I got them. So seven is the most number of channels I've used. I'd probably go to an eight on a couple of planes where I want to add a, a, some more features. But uh, I think, you know, most of the receivers I have are six-channel. And... Uh, course i have a, a dx 7 8 and 9 still in my inventory so you know they they do the job that i need i have to say that in general that the radio is really nice uh, the only thing i'm not that impressed with is they're still using that that jogger dial for control and i never was a fan of that on a dx series no it doesn't bother me i will agree with fitz i i have problems with that rolling knob um, I think my DX8 is actually worse than my 9, so that's, that's kind of nice. That you know, it's like, I think it maybe they've improved upon it a little bit, but uh, it, it often slips on me because uh, I think if I'm not mistaken on the DX8, it's it's like a chrome finish, so it's really slippery. And I think on the DX9, it's it's not. I'll have to check that. Yeah, I really wish they went to a touchscreen on this, just personally, for such a high-end radio. Is that a color screen that's on there? Boy, I it hope so. It looks like different colors from this picture. Yeah, you <laughs> for would the hope price, for it, would, it should like money. be all pretty and nice and have a nice little like uh, you know wallpaper too. <laughs> <laughs> and do your dishes and uh, it kind of sort of does in the picture, uh, but we'll see. Man, well, I'm looking at the manual. I pulled up the manual just now, and it does not look colorful. It looks like the others. Looks like that blue LCD. Well, it's interesting they come up with that. That's to be hopefully. We might come across one at the flying field. We can oogle it in person. Well, I have a it's guy at the club who always seems to buy the newest, latest, and greatest Spectrum, so hopefully I can get my hands on his DX-18 next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and what yeah. are you going to do with that? <laughs> Add it to my little you know, wall of Spectrum fame in my workshop. <laughs> Just, <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't do anything with it. I always laugh. There, was so many, there were a couple of guys at the field who got the DX-18. I went, do you really need that? <laughs> I've seen your planes. I'm pretty sure they're like four or five channel planes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody just overbuys everything just to, for some reason. But hey, it's your money, so. That's right. And we need those people to keep the hobby going. Yes. So yes. Encourage them. <laughs> Freedom! America! America! Well, I'll tell. Hey, I'll tell you the. We you mentioned this earlier, Terry. My DX9 was uh, purchased at a field. Uh, it was pictures at Scobie. This guy was moving from planes to jets, and he had a DX9, and he just got it. He had just like set up his jet. And he goes, you know, what? I need I need an 18, and he gave that thing to me pennies on the dollar. I mean, I got a great deal on that DX9, and he and he went to the DX18, and you know, to him it meant nothing, as you said. You know, if you've got that money for a jet, you know. He, he basically just used the nine to get things going and then moved on. So some, some deals are, to, are, are made by people who upgrade. Yeah, that's right. Speaking of upgrade, uh, I see that there's a new mini apprentice coming out. It's a, a smaller version of the standard apprentice. It looks like a 48 inches versus a 60 inch for the standard model. And uh, I thought that was interesting because I just finished helping somebody learn to fly using the standard apprentice. And, and for the most part, I was pretty impressed with the plane. Uh, and I was, hopefully the little one will be the same. Have you guys ever had a chance to fly any of the apprentices? Uh, my son, Austin, uh, soloed on an apprentice when he was 10. And it was given to us from the club by a gentleman who was in the hobby and got out. And it was a hodgepodge of different apprentice kits. 
two different versions actually because they came out with another modification uh, for the full size one and we put it together and took out the uh, the gyro feature because I think you don't need that but that's well, that's another topic but uh, yeah Austin soloed on an apprentice and they're they are really good planes yeah that's my experience as well I'm currently teaching someone to fly with an apprentice and yeah, it works great and it's amazing at what low throttle setting it will continue flying yeah, that was the, so get, the two things I noticed about it is that a they flew forever and b you you really it almost didn't stall it just would just float through the sky like, like nothing it was really impressive. It is a floater. Yeah, perfect for training. Yeah, really. it, so the uh, the antithesis of that is that it doesn't do quite as well in crosswinds. In the last training session, we had some crosswinds and it was really beating the guy up. But without the crosswind, he was doing great. So I wonder how this smaller version flies. That is a good question. They did have a promotional video on it, and they showed a guy flying around the park and even doing aerobatics with it. So it probably f- almost as well as the big one. Uh, it, of course, uh, through physics, it's probably not quite as floaty as the biggest big one, but I think it should do pretty good. Yeah, I think it's got some floaty to give up, so it should be fine. Yeah, yeah, it's, it had a lot of reserve, so uh, I think it'd be a good choice for a smaller field or somebody who just doesn't want as big a plane, because uh, 60 inches is a pretty good size, so I can see somebody wanting a smaller one and, uh, you know, smaller batteries, and it uses, I think, an 1800 pack or something like that, so. Uh, yeah, my only concern with a smaller trainer is that it it's common for new pilots to fly further away and to get it out of sight quickly, so... Smaller wingspan just makes that happen sooner. Yeah. But as long as you've got an instructor helping you out, that shouldn't be much of an issue. Also, uh, I noticed this is kind of a little side thing, but the Hobby Wing people that make speed controllers mainly, they have a Wi-Fi adapter for their controllers that you can program and upload and update firmware updates to to the speed controller just using your cell phone. And I thought, well, that's really clever. And... And I, I've had castle controllers which plug into the computer, which is really nice, or even a controller that uses a program card, which I lost, and I can't reprogram one of my <laughs> controllers right now. I just re- put a new controller in my plane, and I lost a stupid uh, programming card. But I was, I was wondering, you know, is this the future of controller to have Wi-Fi or even Bluetooth adapters? Because I've seen this in helicopters where they have the flight controllers have Bluetooth in them, and you can just up a laptop or tablet or something and just plug away which is really convenient and uh well i'll i will say when i first got into electric inversions uh i was using phoenix controllers so when they came out with their um usb controller software i used it a lot i know i had my laptop with me at a lot of air shows so i could sit there and tweak and then when i bought some inexpensive type ESCs. I was using the card programmers. But it has been a year or two since I've actually programmed a controller due to any like problems I was having or concerns because most of the time out of the box, things are running really smoothly. And it would probably behoove me to get back into that so I can really fine-tune my setup. But although I like the Wi-Fi idea, you know, having a little box, you can do that. I'm just wondering why they didn't just come out with a, a cord that you could just plug into your smartphone, you know, and I was going to say, you know, lightning because a lot of people have iPhones. So you could just quickly put like a little T connector in there and, and program it versus doing the Wi-Fi. I mean, I like the idea of the Wi-Fi, but because we were always plugging in hard to the, the uh, receiver cord on the ESC to, to do the programming, why you couldn't do the same thing, just real quick, plug it in, look at the settings and then unplug and, and be on your way. I think that Horizon has something like that, at least for the safe receivers. They've got a a smartphone application and then an adapter that plugs into the phone directly. But I think the bigger issue is accessibility. If you've got an airplane where the speed control is buried on the inside, then you would have to dig it out to do the programming. The Wi-Fi is a much better option. So the object is to keep the Wi-Fi adapter in the plane the entire time? Uh, It says it can be mounted in your vehicle, yes. Okay, I assumed that it was an integrated part of the ESC, so that when it's oh, I wasn't clear up. on that. Sorry about that. No, this is actually a separate unit that's purchased separately. 
I think a better okay. idea would be to integrate it into the speed controller, and I hope something we see like that in the future. But it's pretty. It's not small. I mean, it's still it fits in the palm of your hand. So that's why I didn't think it was a a permanent solution. It was just something you plugged in to swap the place of a card. It seems to be either or. I don't know if I'd want well, to. Given that, I don't know how much benefit there is. Yeah, I wasn't too thrilled that it was a separate item like that. But I thought if they could integrate it into the speed controller, that would be really nice. Yeah, but do you, the Internet of Things. Well, I mean, just honestly, Fitz, do you think if it was integrated in the ESC, would you pay extra for that feature and then use it enough? It's a good question. I hadn't thought about that. Because I, it goes to your point where you don't really reprogram these things a lot. You do it sort of once and sort of leave it. I mean, at one point when the price of ESCs and motors were, were at that level that you kind of had to save up to get it, you would say to yourself, you know what, I can buy this ESC and use it on this plane and this plane. But like Orca, I have one of the Hobby King plush 80s, I think, in it. And it was a it's just plug and play. I mean, everything works fine. I never once, because of how inexpensive it was thought i'd pull that out and use it in a different plane i knew i was just gonna leave that in there so i again i think because we've had this wonderful benefit of the the cost of brushless equipment dropping to an affordable state it's you get it in there you wire it so it doesn't move around and then you're done well i think there's two edge cases or at least a couple that i can think of one would be competition if you're racing you might be constantly tweaking the speed controller uh, for, for different uh, features or different uh, settings. And the same thing goes for the helicopter guys. Especially when you start using a governor, you will see some people that were constantly tweaking to get the, the best performance out of the controller. And so they will be changing the settings and, con and the configuration quite a bit. So those two cases, I think, would be beneficial. Terry? I'm thinking, well, we're talking right now Hobby Wing, right? Yes. They're not exactly at the forefront of racing, or do they use them for helicopters? Uh, you, I think you can, but they're not known for being big in the helicopter world. So they're, from what I understand, they're kind of a budget brand. Yeah. Um, so at least under that label, I don't know if I could be convinced that it's a good thing. Well, I was thinking but big picture. I, Say again? I was thinking big picture, not necessarily Hobby Wing, but some of the more well, known names. Yeah, and that's kind of my point. Once the the ones that people are using for those higher-end events or applications adopt it, if they do, then I can see more of a benefit to that. Okay, well, we'll, we'll have to see how this plays out in the future. This is always interesting to be in the forefront of new technologies. And I, I can say this, that the Wi-Fi application for my minicam... So I've got several mini action cameras, the Mobius, the uh, Foxier Legend, and the Runcam 2. And of those, only the Runcam 2 has a Wi-Fi interface to make changes. And it's it's a huge benefit over the others where you have to plug it into a computer. So if, it, if the speed controls provide that same sort of ease, then I'll be sold. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I did a review of the Tactic Drone View camera, which also has a Wi-Fi link. And that was really convenient to be able to to not only download pictures, but to see real-time where the position of the camera is to get the best point of view. Okay, well, let's uh, take a break, and we'll be right back. A few weeks ago, I went to the the Austin Rail Control Association Scale Warbird Flying, which is the first time I've been to that club in years. And they have a great club, paid runway, and the weather was fantastic. And I, I went with three planes, came home with two and a half. And I'll, I guess I'll explain that later. And while I was there, I saw some great flying. And one of the things that really stood out was this huge B-17 bomber, four-engine thing, that smoker kit. And the way this guy flew it, he would do low passes over the runway at about six inches, and it was just amazing to watch. And it turns out that the, the pilot was the club president, Randy Larson. And Randy's known for flying his B-17 and other planes all around the Texas area. And uh, our very own Lee Ray had a great scoop and was able to interview 
Mr. Larson about his B-17 and some other things. And I thought we would replay for you. It's really great. Take it away, Lee. Okay, with me is Randy Larson. Uh, he and I have met several times at Bomber Field at the uh, Big B-17, Big Bird Flying out there in Monteville. And Randy and I just know each other because we see each other out there all the time. And he's got this beautiful plane uh, called Fuddy Duddy. It's this gorgeous B-17 that my camera loves. So I have him with me on the uh, phone right now. And Randy, please say hi to everybody. How's it going, everybody? Glad to be on the show. Randy, if you would, could you let us know how you got started in the uh, RC hobby? Sure, sure. Um, about uh, 28 years ago now, uh, my dad uh, was big into flying giant-scale remote-control airplanes. He uh, flew quite a bit out at Bomber Field. He had a lot of friends. He was one of the uh, the original folks that started the Alvin RC Club there in Houston. And uh, he loved flying a lot, and he started coming to me saying, "Randy, you got to learn how to fly. You're going to love this." And at first, I just I wouldn't have anything to do with it. And uh, he kept pushing, pushing, saying, "You got to try it. You got to try it." So he came to Austin. He uh, got me hooked up out at Austin Radio Control Association and uh, with Lloyd Ligon. And he asked Lloyd if he would teach me to fly. He brought down an airplane, and uh, on the trim-out flight between him and Lloyd, they crashed the airplane into the center of the runway, just destroyed it. And they kind of looked at each other and laughed, and my dad reached into his pocket, pulled out some money. He goes, here, go to the hobby shop, buy a trainer plane, get Lloyd to help you put it together, and get him to teach you to fly it. So he did, and I worked with Lloyd for several weeks. He was fantastic. He helped me all the time. He taught me how to fly. And uh, once I finally got off the buddy box, here we are 28 years later. I, I still, you know, Lloyd is 88 years old. He still comes out and flies with me. And, and that was that was how I got my start in flying and just having an absolute ball with it. You point out the best part about this hobby. It's getting people together, learning from the old timers, making mistakes and and getting back out there and, and fighting another day. And that's great. I And it's good to know that Lloyd is still active. That's that's one of those rare rare guys we need out there at the flying fields. Absolutely. He's, he's so much fun. And still to this day at 88 years old, he will uh, – I'll get out there uh, with one of his favorite airplanes, my one of my giant scale top flight uh, P-51s that – I'd, I've named after him. It's called Big Beautiful Lloyd instead of Big Beautiful Doll. I changed the lettering on the nose. He loves that airplane. He'll get up and he'll stand up against the fence. I'll take it off and he'll get it up in there and fly it. And that to me is amazing. 88 years old. I said, I, I tell him all the time. I said, if I'm able to fly when I'm 88 or if I'm even still around, I'm sure going to be happy. What I'd like you to uh, share with us today is that beautiful B-17 uh, that hopefully people have seen on our website and, and on my website because I take tons of photos of your B-17 Fuddy Duddy. I'm going to give you the floor. Please tell us everything you can about this plane. Oh, you got it. I'll tell you, it, it's, a, it's a fantastic story. Uh, you know, I've been, since my dad got me into flying, he's taken me to Bomber Field um, all these years, I've enjoyed it. I've had so much fun meeting all those guys. And, and I, I always loved watching BB Weber fly his B 17, all the, when they would get four of them in the air at once and always had such a good time with it and really enjoyed it. Well, you know, sadly when, when BB Weber passed away, um, you know, I, I was, uh, I was kind of trying to figure out, well, I, I want to build a B 17 or maybe I could find one that somebody had that was already built to take back every year to bomber field to just kind of help continue on with his tradition of having all the B 17 show up. Well, there's a fellow that used to go to bomber field by the name of Larry Wells. He would drive all the way down from Sturgeon, Missouri, and he would bring a trailer that had six of the giant scale B 17s in it. I got to asking about him and they said he is still around. He's up in Missouri. He still has the B 17s and he wants to sell them. So I got in contact with him and, and told him who I was. He remembered me and I remembered him. And I drove all the way up to Missouri, took my trailer, and I bought Fuddy Duddy from him on that trip. And we had a long talk. We spent the whole day together. It was a lot of fun. I got to see all of his airplanes. I couldn't believe that he's built six of them. 
Well, I bought Fuddy Duddy, brought it back, and once I brought it back and everybody got to see that airplane, some other members in our club got really interested in knowing that he had five more of them up there in Missouri. Well, to make a long story short, we made three trips up to his place in Missouri, and we bought five of his B-17s and brought them down, and they're currently in uh, – they belong to members that they're at Austin Radio Control Association. We've got five of them in the club, and we're doing our best to get them all up and flying. But the main idea was to take them back to Bomber Field every year and keep that show going and, and keep everybody, you know, where – you know, the, the B-17s had kind of – not a lot of them been showing up. It kind of declined and gone down. So I wanted to make sure that we kept that tradition going and that there were some of them there every year that people could see because I know how much people like them. And I always loved watching them fly. Well, Fuddy Duddy, again, it was built by Larry Wells out of Sturgeon, Missouri. He said it took him a little over a year, about a year and a month, to build the airplane. It's a Don Smith 138-inch wingspan. It's got uh, OS 91 four-strokes on it. It uh, <clears throat> when I bought the airplane, funny enough, it still had all the FM equipment in it. It had, you know, the old style receivers and and old battery packs, and I changed all that out to all the new 2.4 Spectrum radios. I've got dual receivers in it, dual battery packs. I actually have three receivers in it. Uh, one of them powers just the smoke system that uh, that you can power that you can uh, turn on and off from another radio as well as drop the bombs and rotate the turrets from another radio. And my wife kind of operates that. She's my bombardier when we go out and fly the thing. She drops the bombs and turns on the smoke, and she loves it. She That helps her kind of, you know, not be – get out there and have a little fun with us also. But he did a fantastic job of building this airplane. Robart retracts. Um, the plane is – it's probably, honestly, in all the aircraft I've ever flown throughout the years, one of the nicest – flying airplanes I've ever owned it it's it's very gentle it flies fantastic it actually makes me look good it's not really me that's doing that good of a job it's that darn airplane it it comes in so nice and so smooth and and just just does a fantastic job and from the time everybody saw it they just kind of fell in love with it and said boy that thing is fantastic you better take care of it and I tried to I really do I I do. I try to do my best to stay on top of it, work on it all the time, make sure everything's ready to go. And I've had an absolute ball taking it to all these shows and, and love going to Bomber Field. And it's really nice uh, getting to fly it out there every year. That 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 uh, particular airfield to me, honestly, is like hallowed ground. I love it. B.B. Weber was always fantastic to me and my dad. So I think it's just kind of fitting to be able to take that and hopefully – the four others we've got in our club back every year to their shows. Randy, have you made any changes to the plane uh, besides the, the the damage repair and uh, changing the radio gear? Uh, yeah, the, only, the, the, the one main thing that I did work on was the smoke system. I, I changed out, put a larger tank in it, a different pump, and I replumbed it so that the uh, smoke is actually injected into the headers instead of the muffler where it comes out of the engine. And when I did that, it made it produce such a better uh, amount of smoke, and it looks so much better. It looks like contrails up in the air. And doing the low passes with the smoke on, the pictures you've taken and hopefully everybody's seen, it works fantastic now. It is beautiful. That's probably one of my favorites in that dark blue sky above Bomber Field, and you've got those contrails. I, I took several photos intentionally with your plane way off on the right side just to pick up all those contrails. And those are some of the best comments we get is that they say it looks so realistic. Yeah, that's, that was one of the things I always loved watching at Bomber Field when they, when some of the guys would have smoke on their planes and take them up and they would turn them on and it looks like high altitude contrails on them. And, and then <laughs> one of the things all those guys give me a hard time about is, is they're like, Randy, it looks so good coming down low with the smoke on, but please don't crash that airplane. <laughs> and I said, I'm not. I said, I'm being really careful with it. I'm going to, I just, it is just so nice to come down and do that. And everybody loves the low passes across the field. And they're just, you can, you, you, it's funny talking to them. They're like, oh, it's cool to see, but please don't crash that plane. Please don't hit the runway with it. So. <laughs> Well, Randy, thank you so much for taking the time to to share the story of Fuddy Duddy and your model aviation uh, history. Uh, I'm sure the the listeners would appreciate it. And again, it's a beautiful plane, and 
I can't wait to take some more photos of it. Oh, you're welcome, Lee, and thank you for all the work that you put in taking pictures and coming to the shows. And you know, if it wasn't for you guys, you know, we wouldn't be able to look back at all the cool stuff that happens and the, the great pictures. So thank you guys very much also. Thanks, Randy. And for the listeners, we'll put uh, hopefully a whole bunch of links of the various events from uh, Fuddy Duddy at Bomber Field at the JSC, plus some videos that we've taken over the years. Yeah, that was a great interview, Lee. Thanks so much. I had a great time interviewing Randy for that. In fact, we talked for almost an hour, uh, so that was just a little portion of it. And uh, I'd love to have him come back to do a session with all of us because he's got a lot of cool information in history in the RC. And, and uh, again, he's a great spokesman for the hobby. And on that, we'll take a quick break and be right back. All right, so I was sitting in my car the other day, and as usual when I'm sitting in my car, I ponder the secrets of the universe and cure to cancer, and I started thinking about RC pilots, and almost that there seems to be sort of a, a few subsets of personality archetypes, maybe even stereotypes, and so I thought I'd tell you guys, or bounce these ideas off you guys, I came up with a short list of RC model flyer types. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> you can tell me what you think of this. Okay, the first one is the crasher. Everybody knows the crasher. This person crashes a lot. May or, although he may or may not be a bad flyer, he just has a perpetual dark cloud over his head and, and, and is always banging a plane into the ground in some new ingenious ways. Next one is the builder. This one is someone who probably almost never flies, just likes to build. Uh, usually paired with a family member, usually a younger family member who actually does the flying, this person builds, a lot of times builds really nice models, just, just not really all that interested in flying them. And then there's the know-it-all. This person has the answers to everything, though he may or may not know actually what he's talking about. Then there's the flyer. The flyer, his planes probably spend more times in the air than on the ground. And in fact, he may explode if he's not flying. Also, we have what I call the five mile, excuse me, the five mile per hour. This person absolutely will not fly if the wind is over five miles per hour. He often comes out to the field before the crack of dawn. Then there's the ADD. This is the kind of person that never comes out to the field with the same plane on consecutive sessions. We also have the OCD who always comes out with the same plane. And the plane is either in pristine condition and runs like a clock, or it's 40 years old and looks like it. Then, then there's the tease. The tease comes out and puts the plane together, but almost never flies it. He may be related to the five mile per hour. Also, I have what I call the hammer. This person is, is upset that somewhere, someone is having a good time with their model airplane. And may or may not be following the rules to the letter. And then lastly, I have what I call the thief. This is the guy who comes out and flies his plane like he stole it. Usually the most entertaining of the pilots, though he may be slightly dangerous. What do you think? Did you come up with all of those yourself? Yes, I did. Hey, it's a long wow. light. It was a long red light. <laughs> I think at some point in time, I've been... Every one of those. <laughs> oh, I'm guilty of one or two as well. This is, I'm not picking on anybody in particular because I fit into one or two of these myself. Though Lee kind of made me think of one more earlier in the broadcast, and I think someone called the buyer. Someone who always buys the top-of-the-line thing even though their skills may not warrant it. That is good. <laughs> there, I've, I've seen a couple of those. I've seen a lot too. Yeah. I would think there's a couple subsets under crasher also. I've seen the guys who crash a lot, and it doesn't seem to bother them, and they always rebuild and come back. And then there's the guys who crash and throw an absolute fit and always wonder why it happened. <laughs> that sounds like the rebounder and the five-year-old. <laughs> well, there you go. Oh, so I 
my list went from 10 to 13, looks like. Well, if you had to categorize yourself right now, which one would you be? I'd probably be the ADD. And maybe, well, I'm also the builder. I do like to build. So I consider it to be... But you fly what you build. Yes, I do. I know, definitely an ADD. A little mixture of, of the builder, the flyer, the thief. <laughs> You're a hodgepodge. Yeah, I'm a hodgepodge. I'm a mutt. That's all I can say. Terry, what do you think? I don't know. I'm looking at this, and I, I'm seeing snippets of all of them in me. So I, I'm going to... I'm going to punt on this one. You guys feel free to classify me if you want to. Well, maybe we call you the Tinkerer? Okay, fair enough. So now we're at 13? 14. Four, oh, wow. We're a I diverse group. I just made that up. The tinkerer, someone who relishes in building the unusual or the, the uh, abstract. Obscure. Obscure. Yeah, well. abstract. Well, abstract I think is better. Well, Terry has the the uh, description of a thief, though he does fly like he stole it, and he does wow do. <laughs> do wow the crowds. I, I think you have me confused with someone else. I think you wow the crowds. Okay, if you say so. I I never go out with that intent. So thank you. <laughs> well, anyways, hopefully we'll uh, we'll compile this list and post it up on the website, and you. People can uh, send us a note, see what they think. Maybe they have something they can add. One of the things I wanted to bring up to talk to you guys about is Velcro. And which side is the correct side to use on the battery or the vehicle? Whichever side you use is wrong. <laughs> right. Well, we figured that out years ago. I have adapters in my field box just for when I'm flying with you so that in case we need to borrow batteries, we can do that. I'm sure it's not just I, me. No, <laughs> I think it's it is. not. I no, I think you use the opposite I do, too, as well. Yeah, well, you two are both wrong. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> oh, yeah, buddy? I, I'm of the opinion that the hook side goes on the battery, and the fuzzy side goes on the And we're of the opinion that you're wrong. <laughs> oh, actually, no, that's how I do it. No. Oh. No, no, yes. no. The tables have turned. It's, it's hook, hook side on a battery. No, it's hook on the plane, hook no. on the vehicle. It's it's loop on the battery. I knew there was something wrong right, about you, Lee. explain yourself. Explain myself. Why? Yeah, why is that so obvious? <laughs> when I put some science to it and I went online to look at what other people were explaining and I agreed, if you put the loop side on the battery, they don't stick together in a, in a bag or something. And also... There appears to be more damage done with the loop side so that you can change out different batteries and it'll stay stronger to the connection on the hook side. Now, on my Thunder and Lightning, I also know that the hook side is stiffer so that when I CA it onto the side, it doesn't tend to roll off. You know, it doesn't tend to, to, to come apart as soft as the loop is. So... I, I have gone online. I have done the research. More people put loop on. I'm sure we'll get readers commenting, uh, readers, listeners to comment on this. But I think if we put a poll out there, more people would put loop on a battery. Your turn. <laughs> well, I think it's just like battery connectors. That When you first start out, you have to pick one, and then you end up sticking with that forever. And for me, I believe it was the Zaggy was the first model that I used Velcro to hold the battery in. And you have one side and you have the other, and you just go with it. And I went with hook on the battery. But subsequently, I found advantage to that because you can kind of stick a battery anywhere. If you're carrying batteries in the car, you can stick the battery on the carpet, and it's not going to slide around while you're driving. Um, I've never had problem with the battery sticking together, like you mentioned. And I rarely have issues with the loop side wearing out before the, the airplane's dead. So, I don't know, Lee, I think you're, you're wrong. No, <laughs> I, I'm not, but it's okay. It's okay, Terry. <laughs> I, like, I like you as a person, but you're just dead wrong. Right <laughs> but the, the, what gets me is that you use a benefit of the hook side on the battery 
that doesn't even apply to the airplane or aircraft itself that it's great to just stick it to the side of your car so you so it doesn't roll around it's i mean that's unique i'm going to give you credit for that but it doesn't even apply to the actual function of keeping the battery on the aircraft it's how it stays in your car from rolling around but that's exactly what i do i stick it right to this my uh, i have a hatchback and i have carpeting on the sides and the bottom so i can stick batteries right to the side right next to the charger it's, it's awesome you don't put your batteries in a case well, I do eventually, but when I'm out at the field or just for convenience, I'll stick them in the side. When I drive around, I don't want my lipo sliding back and forth, so I put the hook side on. It secures tightly to the side in the bottom of my vehicle. I had another... We're going to pull up that quote when you come back to tell us about the incident where you had a car wreck or something while you had lipos in your car. And they rolled around and... The lipos and will not be laying the on the carpet. To hopefully, I mean, if I'm driving my vehicle, I put my lipos in my bag. I have a lipo bag. I have a, I have a armor, one of those ammunition cases, too, that I put my lipos in. I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't see how having batteries stuck to each other is a big problem, it's, personally. It's not. I mean, that's... I mean, I'm being honest with you. That's just something that people had mentioned, but... Uh, you know, it seems to me from my research, and I'm sure we'll have to like put our papers, our, our theses on on our RC Roundtable website. You know, it's got to be at least you know five pages long um, of you know where where are you finding this data that more people use hook on batteries than than loop? I mean, have you Sounds actually like- interviewed people at your club? Have you done a a consensus? Or excuse me, a census with your your club members? I haven't. Sounds like we need a poll or something. <laughs> Sounds like we need a poll to beat oh. Leo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I actually had put, I put some this. thought into this years ago when I started using Velcro as well. And I thought, well, should I use hook side on a battery or loop side on a battery? And my one of my thoughts was, well, if I use the hook side on a battery, if I place on the ground that stuff, the hook side would be easier to clean than the loop side. So I decided, well, I'll just go with the hook. Oh, this would be a gr- to me the amazing part is that all of us actually invested thought into this the first time we did it. Yeah, it's scary, isn't it? Rather, yeah, right. Just stick it on there and not worry about it. Well, here's a, here's a great question: When you buy a an RTF, okay, or maybe some ARFs too, but if you buy an RTF and the then the Velcro's on it, how is it set up? Because I know that my Trojan is set up with hook on the bottom and loop on the battery. You're right. Most of them that I run into are are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> please call please call E Flight and, and let them know that. But are we using ARF building practices as the gold standard now? Is that what we've come to? No, because they're just following the, the normal use that everybody else has. You guys are the abnormal. No such thing as abnormal. I this is great. I, I for the listeners um, who who really didn't get to enjoy the, the the first time Terry and I had this argument, and you were teasing me because, you know, I had it backwards, and you had to give me those little uh, double sided loops, I guess, that you use to to flip it. And we did. We got into a little argument about this, but this is a perfect time to hopefully have. Some of our listeners do a poll. I hope people will email us, or maybe we'll try to find a way to get this. Oh, you know, you can do a poll, uh, Terry, on our RC Groups uh, page, because you can add a poll to the blog, and maybe we can direct people there to to have them vote. Okay, I just want to go on record as saying I don't need validation. <laughs> I don't need your approval Lee. to to stay wrong. <laughs> to commit right. to your wrongness, <laughs> I I am going to be firm in mind that it's it's loop on the plane and excuse me hook on the plane and loop on the battery. Yeah, you're loopy. <laughs> that will be on your tombstone. Wisely, <laughs> he used Velcro. You can Velcro my tombstone to the ground with the wrong side. With the wrong side, exactly. <laughs> okay, well I think we Velcro that into the ground. So let's uh, and then some and then some. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back with our last segment.
Okay, Lee. We picked on you enough. Let's pick on you just a little bit more. What do you got new on your workbench this week? I don't have. Well, I still have planes on my workbench, but I didn't work on the the planes. I got a hold of an RC car from Terry. My son had a Traxxas Stampede for several years, and he just continued to to burn out the brushed motors on that sucker. So after the third motor swap, and he, he burnt out his fourth, I was done. Uh, put that sucker on Craigslist. Got a pretty good amount of money for it uh, and uh, Terry had a car he was trying to sell at Weatherford that didn't get through and I, I called him up and uh, we made a deal he sent it to me and this was my first brushless car to have I have two other cars that are brush motors but this was my first brushless and I wasn't sure about the speed I remember asking Terry if I needed to put a 3S and he affirmed that no you do not need to put a 3S in this sucker uh, after I got his velcro switched out and put my own receiver and, and battery in uh, we got this thing on the street and it is fast I mean Terry how fast do you think that car goes on a 2S lipo before I answer that question, did you catch that little jab fits that he threw in there? Oh, yeah, I caught it. Velcro? Yeah. yeah. Oh, he'll pay okay. for that. Well, it was backwards, so I had to pull it all out. <laughs> permission to treat the witness as hostile? Uh, permission granted. So how fast is that? No, I'm, so oh, I'm sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> yeah, we're too busy steaming. You little mother. I didn't even specify what the car was. I'm sorry. How fast do you think the Duratrax Evader brushless upgrade runs? Oh gosh, I have no idea. Um, I'm not really calibrated to to do that. But if I had to guess, I'd say like 35, maybe 40. It's got to be faster than that. That thing was screaming. It was fun. Okay. Do you have a little GPS unit you can put in there? I don't, but now that you can Velcro in there. <laughs> I'll try. I hope it doesn't fly off though. <laughs> unless I unless I carpet the darn thing. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't, but you know what? That's that's a that's a good idea. I wonder if there's something I can put on that that thing. Um, but it is it is great. I, I it's a nice little uh, what what scale is that? It's not tenth. It's it's a uh, one tenth scale. Okay. It, is is tenth scale? Okay. Yes. <clears throat> um. Anyway, Austin loves it. He he had a great time running that car. We've already had to make some changes to it. We uh, the the Duratrax Evader does have some rear axle uh, problems with the. Uh, ball joints they have these short stubby ones that screw in and they kept ripping out but going online i found a lot of people that had changed them out with the extra long ones and we uh secured that with uh, three millimeter bolts in the back and uh so that was great so the workbench was a success we got a nice little elevator from terry and it's it's a fun running car i'm glad you're enjoying it what do you got terry did i tell you guys about my drift car no while we're on the subject of cars. Uh, I saw you had a post so, on know, it, I think, on Test Day. Yeah, yeah. You guys know what drifting is, I presume? Yes. Okay. So this is what started out as a touring car, a four-wheel drive, tent-scale touring car, and turned it into a drift car, which used to be kind of the norm, and from what I hear, now people are moving more to two-wheel drive. But basically it's just made for sliding around and drifting, and what was surprising to me is that one of the main changes you do for that is you put plastic tires on it. Yeah, really slippery I, tires? Yeah, I assumed it would be hard rubber tires, but no, it's, it's actually plastic. Mm. So, And yeah, it's definitely slippery. And there's a lot of technique to learn how to do it, but it's a lot of fun. You can just uh, get out in the driveway and slip and slide and drift, as it were. Do you have a gyro in that uh, one? as well no uh, i see that's a new thing where they have gyros for that but this is all manual it's a, a lot of throttle control required was it difficult to get a good drift around the corner or whatever they do I, i'll let you know and um, actually it's not to to do it fundamentally to get really good at it i think it takes a lot of practice but to just enter a drift is is not that hard have you put? I think I was doing it pretty consistently after about 15 minutes of trying. Have you put this your run cam on it? No, I haven't done that yet. I should. This is four-wheel drive, right, you said? Yes, and I ended up uh, locking up the rear differential, which helps a lot. It had gear differentials front and rear, 
and one of the things I read is it should have a locked rear differential, so I made a little adapter that basically replaced the, the inner gears of the back differential. It works. And let's see, what else am I working on? Oh, we talked about the Rise RXD250 uh, last time, and Fitz, you have one of those, and I've been flying one as well, and my intent is to make it for night FPV. Oh. Yes, I said night FPV. I've got a, a night or a low-light FPV camera from Runcam called the Owl that I've put in there, and just in testing in dark rooms and out in the backyard at night, it's amazing what you can see with this thing. So the real question I'm trying to answer is if you can see well enough to, to fly with it. So I'll be trying that maybe tonight. One thing I found out is that the stock lights on it aren't quite enough to see it line of sight, which you still need to do. So last night I added a, a whole ring of LEDs around it, and it's bright now. So I'm just hoping that those lights don't cause noise pollution that affects the camera operation. Do you have so any, that's a, a working project do you have any, progress. Do you have any forward-facing lights on it for help illuminate what you're looking at? I do. I have some white ones on the bottom. But again, I was trying to keep it... I was trying to avoid any direct light oh. around the camera. Oh, gotcha. So I want to illuminate things in front, but not necessarily right next to. Oh, that's neat. I, don't, so, I look forward to seeing how that works. I might do something like that on mine. Yeah, it might be a total bust, but it's like everything. It doesn't really matter how it turns out. The the fun is learning about it right. and, and going through the process. Yeah, it's not the destination; it's the journey. Well, my bench has actually been pretty full. Oh, in the last podcast, I talked about my F twenty Tiger Shark, which Terry asked Lee twice about, and for some reason had uh, a memory block and forgot that he actually had one. Lee, me bad. In my defense. In my very, very, very weak defense, you only said F-20. For some reason, I kept thinking it was like a, another military aircraft. When you said it, I, another airplane pictured in my head. You never said the word Tiger Shark. Go back, people, listen to episode two. He never says Tiger Shark. That probably would have helped but, me. <laughs> but Weren't you a kid in the 80s? Didn't you see the AC Delco commercials with Chuck Yeager where he was flying the F-20? You have no excuse. Wow. I and just to add, I have one. It's very nice. I love flying it. I'm sad that I did not chime in. I'm sad that I just was in complete denial of an airplane that it actually is a really good flying aircraft. So continue, Fitz. Yeah, old age sucks. To be clear, it? we're talking about the Great Plains foamy F20. Yes. Okay. But I agree with Lee. It is actually a really nice flying plane. I gave it a maiden uh, the other weekend, and uh, quick little bugger. Uh, kind of small, so you don't get to get too far away. Uh, but uh, it flew really good, even at the partial throttle. I can zoom around, and it was pretty very fast, actually. Uh, so I, on 4S? 4S, yes. I had a 4S. I okay. also used that HV battery we had talked about before at high voltage. Uh, well. So a 4S Plus. 4S Plus, and it was really nice. Yeah, what uh, kind of amps are you pulling with that? I don't, I didn't amp meter it. Oh, I know. I'm getting lazy in my old age, I guess. I I, I forgot. I just use what they, they, they call for 4S and an X amount of amperage on a speed controller, so I just threw that in there. Uh, so I didn't even... I figured that was safe. It wasn't like my other thing. You've been thinking up categories for flyers. You don't have time for this. Yeah. I don't watt meter nonsense. I don't have time for that watt meter, newfangled watts. What does he watt things anyways? I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I went to the Austin Rail Control Association scale warbird fly-in, and one of the planes I brought was my Freewing F-14. Well, now that's on the workbench because it, for some reason, fell out of the sky and tried to destroy itself. And so, unfortunately, it met its demise, and I put it on the workbench to take all the parts out of it. It looks like I can replace just a fuselage. I think everything else, for the most part, survived, believe it or not. So I can sort of turn it into a Franken F-14 once I pick up a new nose gear and a new fuselage set. No, not quite what sure. What does the NTSB say about it? I don't know. It acted like one of the servos locked up or something. Something catastrophic happened because it was flying just fine, straight and level, and it just sort of rolled over on its back and fell out of the air. It was almost like a combination between a tip stall and a 
uh, a servo malfunction. I'm not quite sure what happened. It just me and my observers like, what? Wait, that's just really weird. How it just went from a good normal flying speed to corkscrewing itself into the ground. It was really strange. Fitz, my Park Zone T28, my Air Force version, my first one. I was flying out at ARCA about four years ago. They have a, an event called TEF. And I had been flying it fine, no problems. And then when I was coming around to land and I was in the far right back section, my T-28 just locked up, just rolled on its back, and then just went straight down. I had nothing. You said on the far right, like on the far side of the field? Yeah. On the sort of right side? Yeah. That's almost exactly where mine went in. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe we may have to interview Randy and see if they've had a little, like, a Bermuda Triangle over there. Yeah, it could have been a radio lockout. That's just interesting. And Maybe if you had a DX-20, this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> have some have a big foil antenna on my head, right? <laughs> you, you don't have enough carbon fiber on your transmitter. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> I also, uh, at the fly-in, uh, I told you about my long easy, I ended up smoking both the motor and speed controller on my first flight. It was flying fantastic, and uh, and I thought at first the uh, speed controller was went out. I was able to dead stick it in. I still had PEC, but uh, no motor control. And when I got home to pull it apart, I noticed that when I was pulling the speed controller off the motor, one of the motor wires came off with it. And so somehow I, I nuked the motor. And what's interesting is it was one of those old Aviox motors that I've had forever. And I guess it couldn't handle the, the extra temperatures or whatever because I had put a, a six-cell battery in it. I think it was flying great, but I think I pushed it a little too far. Ooh, that's a screamer. Yeah. Uh, actually, my workbench has been really busy. I had a, I probably had two or three things on it at the same time, literally. Speaking of crashes, one of our club members crashed one of those Durafly Vampires, a little 70-millimeter... EDF jet. I have one of those. Yes, the one you have. <laughs> well, now I have one. <laughs> yes, and you also crashed yours, if I remember correctly. The wreckage of one? Yeah, he, he wrecked the nose. The nose was obliterated, but the from the leading edge of the wing back, it was just fine. And so he didn't want to fix it, so I, he kind of just basically just gave it to me. He ripped out the electronics, or some of the electronics. And uh, this past holiday, I, I picked up a replacement fuselage for a steel. And so I ended up grafting on the nose of the replacement fuselage to the existing body. And I just got that put together, so I'm going to try to maiden it sometime, maybe this weekend. I look well, forward to flying it. Take, Go ahead. Take my advice. You you were there last year when my vampire uh, and Jeff had videotaped it. I you know bit the dust at best. And I rebuilt it that weekend and put those skewers in the booms. And that fixed a lot of the uh, pitch problem I had with that vampire. Oh, so yeah. highly recommend you grab, I mean, I would just do the skewers again. They're cheap. Just put some bamboo skewers down the length of each boom and strengthen them up. I think you'll find that it'll fly much better. Uh, one last thing. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to go up to Arkansas for a small fly-in, which is known for just for very small aircraft. And apparently a big thing there is flying 049-powered airplanes. And so I remember, hey, wait, I have an old 049-plane uh, Gill's conversion I made years and years and years ago. And so, lo and behold, I went up into the attic and I found it. And so I'm going to see if I can refurbish it and get it back into flying condition. It's got an old Cox Black Widow 049 on the nose, which was seized, but I was able to unseize it. And now I need to see if the thing will run still. And uh, put some electronics in it and see if I can get that thing flying. That was... Was, I remember it being a pretty good flying plane. It's an old Spitfire, 24-inch wingspan, I believe. Old Gillows, Roban, Control Line, whatever kit those things were. Uh, looks a little and worn. Are you converting worn. it to RC now? It was already converted to RC. I did it years ago. Okay. Uh, and so I was just going to basically just put some more gear back into it. And The airframe seems to be okay. It's The, the decals are mostly cracked off, but it's got a neat little camouflage monocoque finish on it and stuff so i figured what the heck well that'll be fun what kind of fuel do you run in that 049 uh i'll probably run some 30 percent nitro fuel in it okay can you still buy glow heads for those 
Yes, you can usually find some. Uh, well, there's Cox out of Canada that bought up all the supplies. I believe they still sell glow heads, and you can find them occasionally on either eBay or RC groups for sale form, that kind of stuff. Plus, I have a bunch in a box that I'm sure I can use. I literally have a box of 049, so I, I can hodgepodge something together. And uh, that's it for me. That's what I have on the bench. All right, guys. Well, thanks for another entertaining episode, and thanks for joining me. And uh, you guys have any last thoughts before we bug out? Don't Velcro what I wouldn't Velcro. <laughs> it wouldn't stick oh. anyway. <laughs> uh, I deserve that. <laughs> All right, then. Until next time, fly safe. Please visit our website at rcroundtable.com where you can send us comments and suggestions and listen to our other great podcasts. Those who live in Las Vegas can listen to us over the radio at the all-new Magic 97.9 FM, KIOFLP Las Vegas. So, Terry, have you abused anybody else in this uh, debate as much as you have me? No, because n nobody else cares as much as you. <laughs>